Hebrews chapter 2. As you're getting there, I will uh, I'll pray, and then we will we'll get started. Sound good? All right. Jesus, just um, <clears throat> just want to be completely open before you tonight. Um, even as I as I teach, I pray that others here, as they're here to learn, uh, myself included, that we would just be open to you tonight. <clears throat> that we would perhaps see you. Um, in a different way than than some of us have seen you. And so I just pray that, that Holy Spirit, you would enable me to teach, that you would enable us all to learn, that we would set everything else aside, that we would be here now, that this would be the continuation of our worship, even though the music has ended, um, that our worship would continue as we seek to every day know you more. And uh, I pray that this um, the the exhortation of your word would bolster that that it would it would charge it would fuel our week it would it would it would um, remain in our minds and in our hearts who you are what you've done and how we're to respond to that call on our life and so Jesus is always be glorified in this time pray that your people would be edified in this time all for your glory in Jesus name Amen. If I did anything last week, I hope, for those of you that are here, if I did anything last week, I hope that through the author's words, we don't know the, the, the earthly pen that, that wrote this book, but we do know that the, the script, all scriptures are authored by the Holy Spirit. And so though we don't know the author necessarily in an earthly sense of the book of Hebrews, we do know that the Holy Spirit had his way with him. If, 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 if anything came about from chapter one, I hope it's this that you see, that we see, that we understand that Jesus is above everything. Everything. He created the heavens and the earth. We talked about this last week. And in that sense, he created the spiritual realm and he created the physical realm. And in the, fear of physical, or in the spiritual realm, the author begins in chapter one, right off the bat, just says basically this, Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is bigger than angels. Jesus is superior to angels. And angels are magnificent, by the way. They're amazing creatures, strong, wise, holy, fervent. They're, they're not cute. They don't have clouds and harps. These are messengers of God. They were often um, the bringers of the wrath of God. They are amazing creatures. We know that, that some of those angels rebelled, were kicked out of heaven. Those are where we get demons. And so, but we know from that whole side of the things, this whole spiritual realm, the heavens and the earth, keep in mind, it says that he created the heavens. So heaven didn't even exist before Jesus created heaven. He's above all of that. Everything you can possibly comprehend, Jesus is above all of that. And here's what I want to do tonight. I want to, the author wants to bring Jesus right down to eye level. In two chapters, he goes from above the spiritual realm and he literally says this. Last week, we learned that he was above angels. He's better than angels, superior to angels. Today, tonight, chapter two, he says he became lower than angels. And so it goes from this to this real fast. The God of the heavens comes to earth real fast. And the author of Hebrews is speaking to believers Jewish believers that had converted. He's speaking to non-believers that didn't buy this whole thing, that didn't buy that Jesus was God, that he is who he said he was. He's speaking to believers and non-believers alike. And then he goes from the heights of heaven and he's gonna go down to the depths of the grave in the first two chapters. And so I hope if anything from last week, and if you weren't here last week, we put them all online. You can go find them, ask us how afterwards. We'll show you where to go. The author acutely sets him up so high. But thank goodness he didn't leave him there. Because that's a God that can't relate. That's a God that can't possibly know what you're going through right now. If God stays there for all of eternity, he can't relate. And by the way, every other religion, has that's where they've left God. Distant, far off, and your mission in life is to find a way to get to him. This is what separates Christianity from all the false religions. And I love that the author goes like this in two chapters, and he's still got like, a, like 11 to go, right? And he goes from here to here in the first two. 
And so he says this. Now keep in mind that, that when the Bible was written, there weren't, there weren't chapters like there are now, okay? The author didn't write a big two, okay? <laughs> right? So he's continuing a thought from last week. We generally stop at the end of the chapters, which is fine. But what he's going to do is he's completed this whole thought. Jesus is better than angels. He's bigger than angels. He's superior to angels. He's bringing a better message than the angels. We know that the angels brought the old, some of the Old Testament law, okay? And it's not that Jesus was simply bringing a new message. It's that we saw last week that Jesus is the message. So not only what he said, but everything he did was now the breath of God on earth. It was the imprint, the express image of God. God the Father put Jesus on earth and said, that's how you'll know me. If you've seen him, you've seen me. And the Bible says you can't see the Father. So even in the Old Testament, when people looked into heaven and they saw God, they weren't seeing God the Father. They saw Jesus before he was incarnate as the name Jesus. But God puts Jesus on earth and says, that's my express image. That is the imprint of who I am. You see him, you see me. And so he sets him up so high. And as we go right into chapter two, he says, therefore, so this is therefore, based on this, which is Jesus is above angels. He brought a better message than the angels. He is the message. He is creator. He brings a new covenant, a better covenant. Therefore, it says at the beginning of the chapter, therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard lest we drift away and to heed something we don't use that very often like your professor doesn't say like take heed this is an important part right if they do weird right (laughs) probably a philosophy professor or something right take heed just simply means pay attention to so there's, there's people that can pay attention to things, but there's a call now immediately at the beginning of chapter two to more than just that. To more than just heard it, got it. Because as I delineated last week, remember, he's not only speaking to Jews who got it intellectually and it embedded in their heart and they believed it and they lived out this faith. He's also speaking to Jews that agreed intellectually, but their hearts weren't in it. We're like silly Jews. Come on. How many of us have been there? What we believe in our head hasn't translated to what we believe in our heart. So even within the saved category, he's talking to two different folks. He's talking to the people, he's encouraging those that believe in their head and are are pouring it out of their hearts. But he's also talking to believers and some of us here tonight. I told you last week, I grew up in the church. I don't know when I was saved. You're like, what was the moment? I'm like, I have no clue. I've just always grown up in the church. My dad was a pastor. My parents love each other. All the siblings, got three siblings. We all love and serve Jesus. We've been in the church our whole lives, Right? And for a long time, I just believed everything. I got it. I understood it. I could debate it. I could fight with you in class at Kowloon, right? Taking intro to religion. I'm like, something's off with this lady, right? Like, it's not what the Bible says there, genius, right? That's why I went to Kowloon, because I wanted to be able to go, hold on, <laughs> Sarah, let's talk real quick. Because <laughs> I was a jerk, okay? I wanted 20 people so that I could fight, Okay. So I got it intellectually. I could debate. But if you met me in college, you'd be like, that guy's not walking with Jesus. There's no way. He taught. He's he's classic Christian, taught, no walk. And so he's imploring both of these groups. He says, therefore, okay, we pay attention. We got it. Cool. Jesus is better than angels. He says, therefore, we must give a more, more earnest heed. It's to be moved by it. It's to act upon it. Terrible analogy. I'm coaching AYSO for the first time. Didn't want to, but they were short on coaches. And it's, it would be incredibly frustrating if the soccer players were like, we heard you. It's not going to do it, right? Oh, kick the ball toward the goal. Yeah, they're, they're like U7s. They still, you have to point them that goal. Genius, okay? Because <laughs> they're just running in circles. <laughs> and I'm trying to get them to understand things, but then act on them. We just suffered our first loss yesterday. I can't wait for practice on Thursday. I can't wait. I'm weird coach, right? Like that's going to build more in them than winning, right? They get immortal like immediately. They won their first two games. They're like, are we the best team here? Like, first of all, you're six, okay? (laughs) You're actually terrible at soccer. You don't know that. No, you're not the best team here. You played two teams for crying out loud, right? 
But I can't wait to see how they respond to instruction now in the face of adversity. But I got it. Jesus is better than angels. So his words are way more than angels, like way more impactful, right? How's that going in your walk? Do you have that reverence for what is said by Jesus? When he has a call on your life, do you take it more seriously than if an angel showed up right now and told you to do something? Like, oh, freaky, right? It's not scary, but it's that Jesus is even higher. So it says, therefore, you should actually take a more earnest heed. You should be more fervent in your desire to be moved by what Jesus says than even the angels, because he's above them. So it says to take a more, to give a more earnest heed to be moved by. And it says, lest we drift away. It's easy to fall away from something we've only paid attention to from the periphery. Some of you right here, and I'm, I'm not, I'm, we are excited you are here, but some of you are here and you're in the metaphoric, you're on the outward boundary. You just kind of want to see. You want to watch and you're, and you're going to judge the music how I like it and do they dress weird? Why does he have a skull on his t-shirt? What's he going to talk about, right? Are these guys, are they going to welcome? You're, you're at a distance. It's Okay. Maybe you've been in the church. You're just kind of keeping your distance. You're not serving in the church. No, that's weird. That's too much. I'm in college. I got a lot to do. Right? You're kind of at a distance. It's easy. And we know the sociological trend. Faith, church attendance, morality, whatever you define, plummets in college. Plummets in college. You ride your parents' faith for a little while. You get to college and it plummets. It bottoms out. It starts to come back up when you get a job. And then it goes back up when you have kids because all of a sudden you're like, shoot, these little sinners need help, right? (laughs) And then parents start being like, well, we should go to church. Get your butt to church, right? They come out, little sinners, I'm telling you. I got an eight-month-old baby girl. I'm like, you're the cutest sinner I know, right? Right? But we know that this is, is, college is the time. Probably 90% of people here in college right now, this is the time where it's easiest for you to drift away. Everything's at a periphery says, lest we drift away. And notice that it's not necessarily something that you do. This isn't like some radical departure. Like, no, I'm out. It's just something that you kind of nonchalantly fall away from. It's a drift. Anyone seen a boat drift? It's not radical. You didn't turn on the engine and say, I'm out. Oftentimes that slope is off at a distance, from a distance, and it just kind of drifts away. It just drifts away. It says, lest we drift away. The call is to take what Jesus says seriously, to love and serve others, to love and serve the church. Why? Because he loved and served the others and he loved and served the church. So right off the way, there's a call in this chapter. Often drifting away is not from doing anything. It's from not doing anything. Lest we drift away. Verse 2, it says, For if the words spoken through angels provided steadfast, and every trans- steadfast, just read that as strict, right? So if, if what the angels said was like super strict, and it was, God's people took it as super strict. Say what you will about the Jews, right? They were better at religion than us. They were. It doesn't mean it saved them, but they were better at that than us. You can say the same thing about the modern day Mormons. They're like, they're not Christians. But they honestly, they actually look more like Christians than we do a lot of times. Have you been to Salt Lake City? You can go into grocery stores. You're a Mormon. Food's virtually free. They build entire neighborhoods for people. They all tithe 10%. It's kind of like automatic deduction, like they have to. But they have to tithe. They have to give. They have to serve. They, they, are, they are some of the nicest, most gracious, most loving people on the planet. I probably would rather hang out with a lot of Mormons than a lot of Christians. Right? It doesn't mean they're safe, but they do religion really, really well. They do for different reasons. They don't, they've got a misunderstanding about who Jesus is, what grace is, and how you get to heaven. And that's what, of course, corrects them. As Zach has preached, grace is dangerous. It's dangerous to tell someone that no matter what you do, Jesus has you and he won't let go. It's by grace now, not the law. It's tough. So he says, for if the word spoken through the angels provided steadfast proved steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. It'd be like if Zach and I were in charge of punishing you throughout the week for your sins, right? Most of you would move to like Montana. You're like, 
No, I'm out. Certainly wouldn't come back, right? But every transgression had a penalty. That was the whole sacrificial system. They knew they sinned, so they brought their best lamb and it got slaughtered. It says, look, what the angel said was super strict. Every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. How then, how shall we escape? How shall we escape? So he's saying, if the word from the angels is to be taken seriously, how should we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So he says, if the words of the angels was taken so strictly and so strongly, how can we get away from the fact that if Jesus has a calling on our life, who's above the angels, how much more seriously should we take that? How much more seriously should we take that? Do you see this idea, how he's transitioning? He says, if you believe chapter one, he's above angels. We should be more fervent in our faith. It doesn't mean works-based salvation, but we should be even more fervent on the calling of our life. What's our calling of our life? I don't know if only God wrote a book on it, right? I wish he just had like an instruction manual on how to live. I wish he sent a representative to show us what a good life looks like. That'd be amazing. Is people catching the drift? It's about Jesus here. Okay, so how should I live? I don't know, study Jesus. Don't look at me and Zach. (laughs) That laugh was for me. He's like, don't look at Mark, (laughs) right? Don't look at us. We're not the example. We have a calling on our lives as pastors to be sure it's to point you to Jesus so you don't look at us. If only God sent a representative to show us how much more fervent should we be to have a life that looks like Jesus is by the grace of God, every day looking more and more like Jesus. If the Jews took what the angels said, granted it was the messenger was the angel and of course it was still God's word. And they took it so fervently. Those guys were crazy. The author says, how much more seriously? How can you try to escape the calling that Jesus has on your life if he's better than the angels? So he says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Now, it's not neglect like ignore. It's just make light of it. I've got the word here in Greek. Not going to try to pronounce it. If anyone wants to know, you can come up and look them out. But it was used in Matthew 22 when Jesus gives the parable of the wedding feast, where in verse five of Matthew 22, he says, they made light. They made light of this call to come to the wedding feast. So they made light of it, sort of like, eh. I don't know if that's the party I want to go to. My Fridays are special. Who invited, who's, whose house is that? Yeah, nah. Just make, kind of make light of it. It says that we would just kind of make light of this salvation. Like you've been saved. You've been rescued from the pit of hell. And we're sort of like, eh, I don't know. We'll see. After college. We'll do it after college. Right? Let's get, let me get through this. Let me get through my fun. Let me get through my rebellion. And then we'll, we'll get on track when I have kids. That's what Pastor Mark said they do. Anyway, so. How could we neglect this call in our life, this salvation, if you truly grasp that Jesus is above everything and that he saved us from the pit of hell? How much more? This is convicting in my own life. I didn't get it this week. I didn't crush it, nailed it, sanctified, right? We all walk through that, but, but is, that, is that where the fervency in your heart is? Is to show a broken world a perfect God now before they meet him face to face. So it says, how could we neglect? How could we kind of make light of this? This is a challenge to believers. The author's, author's talking to believers. He's not thumping on unbelievers like, you don't get it. He's looking at believers going, do you get it? You say yeah to chapter one, but then the call on your life to act out on that, you're like, eh, maybe after college. Maybe later, once I, get, once I get married, then things will get worked out. By the way, things don't get worked out once you get married. Gentlemen, your porn addiction doesn't go away once you get married. I'm sorry to tell you. Mine didn't. Once I get married, then it'll be fine. I'll just stop doing it. Come back to me a couple years when that doesn't work out for you. Ladies, once, once I get married, I'm not gonna, not gonna do everything I can to get his attention. Then I'll focus on my... Fa- no. There's issues of the heart that are gonna transcend a marriage ceremony. Calling on your life now to grip with this now. But as I said, I'm not, I don't mean to make this heavy. I wanna show you this transition that the author does. It's, it's beautiful in the first two chapters. You believe this. How much more fervent should we be about it? But watch, he's going to bring Jesus eye level. It 
So he says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which, is the f- which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. The author is simply declaring he's not a first generation Christian. He wasn't there. He learned from the apostles. He, she learned from the apostles. Second hand, okay? And verse four says, God also bearing witness, both signs, these are the other ways that God has confirmed what he says, also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. And then he says this, verse five, he says, for he has not put the world to come of which we speak in in subjection to angels, but one testified in a certain place saying, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little low. I love how he says little, right? A little lower than the angels. You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. A little lower than the angels. This is where the God that is above the angels, like no other false God of any false religion, this is where the God of the highest heights of heaven comes to his people. God came to Adam and Eve in the garden. He came to his people over and over in the Old Testament. He came to us in the person of Jesus. He came after us when he was on a cross. This whole thing ends in Revelation where Jesus comes back to earth, where heaven comes to earth. It's not that we all go away forever. It's that heaven comes back to earth. The God of the Bible is a God who pursues, not one that demands to be pursued. It's not that we fall down a mountain, we turn around and find a way to get back up. It's that we fall off that mountain and Jesus comes running after you. It's that no matter how far and how long you run, when you stop and you turn around, that's called repentance, you find out that Jesus is right there on your heels. He doesn't say, do this to get back to me. He says, I've done what I've done so that I could get to you and so that you could be with me. And now the God that created the angels comes down, the Bible says, now he's made himself lower than the angels. And this is where we're gonna get super nerdy This is where we're going to do a little doctrine. Don't be afraid of that word. It's from the French word for doctor. Good doctrine heals. It may be divisive by nature, but it's intended to heal. So allow me a little bit of a Bible nerd moment here because I want to talk about what's just happened. Theologians call it the hypostatic union. It sounds fancy. It's very simple. Simple in at least its translation difficult to understand, but it's called the hypostatic union. This is where we declare Jesus to be both fully God and fully man at the same time. 100% God, 100% man. People are like, how does that work? Not exactly sure, but what I do want to do is I want to show you how it plays out. How, explain exactly how it works. Let me show you how Jesus embodied how it worked. So very simply, hypostatic union, I would say the best definition I've come across is the combination of divine and human natures in the single person of Jesus Christ. Hypostatic meaning personal. Union, of course, meaning together. Hypostatic union is the personal union of Jesus's two natures, divine and human It's not that Jesus stopped being God. It's that he added humanity to his Godhood. He added it as an attribute. He never stopped being God. He was never only man. These two natures come together. And again, what's known as the hypostatic union, fully God, fully man. This is not half God, half man. This is not only God and only man. This is not, as some people say, God on the inside, man on the outside. Again, you go back to, what is it, 1 verse 3? 
who being the brightness of his glory in, the, in chapter one, the express image of his person. It's where God puts his, his physical image on the earth. So if you add physicality, if you add the physical realm to God's very nature, it's Jesus. Added to him in the hypostatic union. The express image of his person to being like a stamp. Jesus is the physical stamp of the nature of God, fully God, fully human. And it was interesting because I was talking with a friend actually just yesterday. We had an interesting conversation. Um, he's not a believer. One of, my, one of the guys that I've maintained the longest open communication with since college. Um, a friend of mine, love him dearly. Um, he asked to listen to the sermon, so it's awkward for me to tell him that I love him. Um, and he, he and I were talking about, kind of, long story short, we were kind of joking about how a lot of Christians don't have a sense of humor. I call them lemon suckers. They're just, just all day, just sucking on lemons. Just, that wasn't funny. Was, I don't like your Facebook meme. And, stop it. I'm laughing. I'm liking it. I'm doing the ha, ha, ha emoji. I'm like, that's funny. Like Christian fiction in the bookstore. Oh, I don't care. He's like, why do you get to laugh at stuff? But so many other people don't. I'm like... I don't know, maybe it's because I'm weird, maybe it's because most Christians don't have a sense of humor. They're, they don't see kind of that personal side. They don't think Jesus was funny. People are like, it doesn't say he laughed. Well, it doesn't say he peed either, but I'm pretty sure he did, <laughs> right? Like, and so this is where I want you to start seeing Jesus differently. Not weird, creepy, but I want to start making him a little more personal because he is. Um, and so, look, when Jesus says you're going to, that's like trying to get a rich guy into heaven is like trying to put a mangy beast of an animal, like a camel through the eye of a needle. And people are like, theologically, what does that mean? I think there was a door and I had an opening. Jesus was making a joke. Relax. Chill out. So Jesus never joked, please. Dude lived on the road with a bunch of guys for a couple years. Are you kidding me? Like they didn't tell stories around a campfire. Stop it. Right? He's like, it's like taking a big, gnarly camel and ramming that thing through the eye of a needle. And people are like, <laughs> right? That's crazy. When Jesus said to the Pharisees, have you not read? Right? People read that. Have you not read? Where it says, wow, it's crazy. What's he trying to say? He's making fun of them. He's openly mocking them. It's like asking a doctor if he's ever done homework. Like, oh, hey there, doctor. Have you, have you ever taken a test? You laugh. Why? Because it's funny. When Jesus asks the Pharisees, you know what the Pharisees' job was to do? Was to read. Right? Like, that's their job. Read and walk around like a jerk. That was their whole job. <laughs> Just read and then hate people. Right? Jesus, make it, have you not, like, have you not read? The guy in the back is like, did he say that? Did he really say that to the Pharisees? Of course he read. He's, they memorized the entire book. Jesus, like, have you not read? And people are like, no, you didn't make jokes. Okay. But we were talking about that, and then I just said, look, I said, people just failed to see the humanity in Jesus. And, and my friend was just like, what are you talking about? He's like, I've never even heard that. Right? And I'm, I actually err on this side too. When it comes to this, and we're going to get into just a little bit here in a second, when it comes to it, I spend way more time with the Jesus up above than I do the one that's at eye level. Same Jesus. If you've, if you've been coming here for a while, you probably know this. It doesn't shock you. Maybe you're just thinking about it. It does. I, I'm, I, I, I do. For better or for worse, I talk about Jesus so big all the time. I talk about Jesus of revelation. Coming back down, slaughtering his enemies. His enemies is a footstool. I put him so up here a lot of times, even in my own walk, day to day, I forget that he's right here. He's eye level. I put him off in a distant galaxy. The heights of heaven, but a lot of times I forget that he came to the depths of the world. In this hypostatic union. And it was interesting because what my friend and I started talking about is I, I told him, I said, it's interesting that the first false teaching of Jesus in the church, in the church, in the first century, the first false teaching of Jesus in the church, the first heresy was not that he wasn't God. It's that he wasn't human. That was the first heresy within the church. It was that he seemed to be human. In fact, it was called docetism from the word in the Greek to, meet, to seem like something. The heresy wasn't that Jesus was a God. They're like, we get he's God. But, but come on, like God, doesn't, God can't do the human thing. That was the first heresy. It was taught by a guy by the name of Serenthus. I think I pronounced it right. Who opposed the apostle John in the city of Ephesus. 
which is quite likely why John wrote in 1 John 4, 2, when he was addressing this idea of Gnosticism, that God is far away and can have nothing to do with physicality. Everything that you can touch is bad in Gnosticism. If you can touch it, it's corrupt. God can't touch anything. He can't be of substance because all things of substance are corrupt. That's the God of Gnosticism. And so this teaching arose while John was still alive. And in 1 John, he wrote, by this, you know, the spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus is Christ has come in the flesh is of God. He said, if someone professes of Jesus who became human, that's when you know the message is from God. Not that God is far away and he's this amazing, great God, but he can't become physical. He says, that's when you know that you've gone astray. And then he wrote again in 1 John 5, 6, he says, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the spirit who bears witness because the spirit is truth. So the hypostatic heresy attacked the personhood of Jesus. Said we get God, Jesus is God, but he was never man. And that sets God back up as a God who can identify with what you're going through right now. I don't want to serve that God. I don't want to serve a God that doesn't know what it feels like to lose a friend. What it's like to lose on earth what it's like to go through emotion, what it's like to to struggle, to feel burdened, to feel weight, to feel tired. I don't want to serve that God. I want a God that understands, not just intellectually, but he's felt it. He's lived through it. And this separates, guys, this separates Jesus from all gods that all false religions in the history of man have ever come up with. It's God's off, it's off in the distance and you've got this guy on earth that will tell you about him and how to get to him. It's never that that God who's off in the distance in the heights of heaven will come down, look you eye to eye and say, this is who God is and I'm here and I'll go through everything that you go through so that I can identify with you and when I go back to heaven, I can sit as your great high priest and advocate on your behalf and say, Father, it's not about them, it's about what I've done. And so that's the hypostatic truth. Jesus is one person, both fully God, fully man. The Chalcedonian Creed states, Jesus' two natures are without confusion, without change, without division, and without separation. The great preacher, Jonathan Edwards, preached in a sermon that this one person, God-man, we find in Jesus is the admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. The admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. Pastor Mark, how does that work? I don't know, but let me show you. Let me show you two lists side by side of God as Jesus as fully God, and fully man, I've got all the scripture references right here. I'm not going to read them. If you want them, you can come get them or I can email them to you. If you want to go take a look at these side by side. As God, Jesus was called God. As man, Jesus was called man. And I've got the scripture references. John 20, 28, Hebrews 1, 8. You said you, said you weren't going to do this. Right? Mark 15, 39 and John 19, 5. I'll just give you that first one. As God, Jesus was worshiped. Right? And if he was just a good teacher, he wouldn't accept worship. That would make him a bad teacher. So as God, Jesus is worshipped. And as man, Jesus worshipped the Father to show us how to worship. Not that he was less, that he came to do the will of the Father and he worshipped. Because could you imagine if Jesus came and didn't worship? We'd be like, he's our example. He never worshipped. Why should I? As God, Jesus was called the Son of God. As man, Jesus was called the Son of Man. As God, Jesus is prayed to. As man, Jesus prayed to the Father. As God, Jesus lived a sinless life. As man, it says Jesus was tempted in every way just as we are. Tempted, yet without sin, but tempted. He just doesn't know what I'm going through. He doesn't know. Yes, he does. 
because he was tempted in every way. As God, Jesus knows all things. As man, the Bible says that he grew up in wisdom. He learned things. How does that work? I don't know, but I'm going to ask him. So he knew all things as God, and yet he learned things as man. How did he? Not sure. I'm just showing you. As God, Jesus gives us eternal life. As man, Jesus died. And there's heresy that says he didn't die, he passed out. And I've gone through the medical stuff in the past. If you want it, I'll send you my notes on that too. Jesus died. There was no way for him to live. It was over. Jesus physically died. As God, all the fullness, it says, of deity dwells in him. And as man, the Bible says that Jesus has a body, has a body, had a body of, of, of flesh and bones. And then today he has a glorified body, which he says, every single one of you who die in me will get one as well. So now Jesus has a, still has a different nature than God the Father God the, or in God the Holy Spirit had a body of flesh and bones. And I, and I, want, I, I just did some other notes too on his humanity because, because as we're bringing him down from above angels to eye level, I want us to think about this humanity. So I want to go through even more humanity stuff. I could keep going through God stuff, but I want to emphasize some of the humanity. Jesus had parents. Raise your hand if you have parents. Some of you are confused about the question. No, it, parents, regardless of, of where they are, what they've done, who is who. If you have parents, put your hand up. Somewhere in, in eternity, you have parents. Jesus had siblings. Raise your hand if you have siblings. You don't have to, but I'm just saying. He knows what that stuff's all about. Okay? I mean, he's a carpenter, probably had bunk beds. I'm assuming, right? I'm assuming he probably got top, right? Like, Jesus is like, well, I'm God, so I'll be up there if you have any questions, right? <laughs> By the way, his siblings at one point said he was crazy and they tried to have him apprehended. Who's had issues with their sibling? Put your hands back up. It's everyone that has a sibling, okay? <laughs> Jesus had that too, okay? I told my brother he was adopted for years, okay? I'm like, have you ever noticed you don't look like us? <laughs> Stop. <laughs> now he's a doctor and richer than me and everything. He's better, whatever. Jesus was a baby. Raise your hand if you're a baby at some point. Again, some people still confused, even after the parent question. He was a toddler. You know, look at a toddler, he'd be like, Jesus was at one point a toddler. Jesus was a teenager. Right? I refuse to believe that. (laughs) He became an adult. Jesus went to school. Raise your hand if you went to school. People are like, stop with the hand raising. I, don't, I do that during the week. I don't do it at church. Jesus had a job. Had a job. Yeah, got up for 18 years. Probably 18 because he probably started with his stepdad. Who has stepparents? Anyone? Jesus had a stepdad and a biological mother. Jesus had a job. We don't know anything about it. It's because there wasn't much to write about. Right? Would people be writing a story about your epic internship right now? <laughs> Right? I wrote press releases for mine. No, that's not going to make the Bible. Okay? Like, what did Jesus do? He worked. No, but like, what did he do? He got up. He had breakfast with his parents and his siblings. What did he do? Packed a lunch. Went to work. Ran a business. I'm a business owner. I love this about Jesus. The God of all the false religions, none of them ran a business. Right? Like, Buddha certainly did not. Right? never worked a job, ran a business with his dad for 18 years. He didn't start preaching until he was 30. What did he do every single day? Six day work weeks back then, by the way. What did he do in the Middle Eastern sun all day since he was 12? Worked his job. I imagine this. I imagine, and Jesus had to go out to get clients. He had to bid on estimates. Like it wasn't like Instagram. Like it was word of mouth. It was like, dude, like your porch is amazing. He's like this Little kid, Jesus did it. You should talk to him. He's like, hey, do my porch, right? Some of you think this is demeaning. It's not. Jesus would be like, I remember those days. Some of you are like, this is demeaning. It's, it's below God. No, it's not. That's the thing. It's not. Every day he went to work for 18 years. A lot of you, who's college freshman? He worked longer than you've been alive. <laughs> At a blue collar construction job. People are like, oh, but it was wood and saws. No, it was rocks in the Middle Eastern sun. 
I imagine the Pharisees walked down the street in their robes, perfect, clean, amazing. Just got done reading, of course, right? They walked by like, look at this peasant kid cracking rocks. And it was God working on a porch. And they walked by, oh, to be poor. And he's like, oh, to be God. I just made that up. It's not in my notes. Or the Bible, don't tell your parents. <laughs> he had a job. He had a job. He spent a lot of time on that one. I know, it trips me out. That God had a job for 18 years. Started preaching, it only took him three years, and then they killed him. Jesus had friends. Jesus was invited to weddings. You know why? When was the last time you invited someone who wasn't fun to a wedding? Why did he get invited to a wedding? <laughs> Look at the married couple in the back. That is a bad analogy, homie. <laughs> Half my list is <laughs> not an American wedding. <laughs> like, you know why Jesus got invited to weddings? Because he was fun. Because he was fun. He was fun. No, he wasn't. He was fun. Jesus was fun. He went camping with dudes for years. He was fun. Okay? You've seen how guys get by themselves around a fire out in the wilderness. Okay? Jesus had friends. He got invited to weddings. Jesus got hungry. You know what he did when he got hungry? He ate food. Crazy. <laughs> Amazing. So below God. He got thirsty. You know what he did when he got thirsty? He drank. Crazy. That Jesus got thirsty and drank. Jesus cried. Men be like, guys, don't cry. I don't know what guy you're studying. Men cry. Well, how do I know that? How do I know that's a part of masculinity? How do I know that? Because if Jesus was perfect in his masculinity and he cried, gentlemen, we can cry. Not all the time. I mean, don't be that guy, but like... (laughs) It says he wept like three times in the Bible, so that's all you get. (laughs) Jesus felt pain, right? Like people think he's got, like he floated. You think he didn't cut himself working? Right? You think he didn't? You didn't think Jesus's blood was 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 spilt on the work at the workplace? People had no clue it was it was it was a bloodline direct from heaven because he had no earthly father. It was God's blood on a porch, and he cleaned it up. He felt pain. He mourned. He was happy. I've I've seriously read articles on people debating whether or not Jesus ever laughed. This, these are the lemon sucker Christians I'm talking about. Just, it doesn't say, like I said, it doesn't say Pete either. I'm pretty sure he didn't hold it for 33 years. <laughs> Did he laugh? Yeah, he experienced all human emotion. He laughed, of course, told jokes. Find me a God of a false religion that can identify with you on those things. Find one. Even the, the prophets of the false religions pretend that they're above those things to make themselves be more like God. And yet God actually came and he was all these things. The good news is this, is that Jesus is all powerful. All powerful. Above the angels. Creator of all things. He's that big. And yet he's that personal. That Jesus would come and stand eye to eye with the captives. I've heard it said that Jesus had to enter the prison before he could free the captives. He went in. He could have sent in an army. He could have said by political decree, he could have said this, he could have said that. Instead, he actually went into the prison of humanity so that he could free the captives. A God that's that powerful is this personal. And I fail to remember that daily. I leave him up here way too long. Doesn't mean he's not there. Just means that I forget that this is, like the cliche bumper stickers say, this is about a relationship. This isn't religion, which is finding ways to reconnect with God. This is that Jesus has reconnected you to God. That's the Jesus of the Bible. That's the good news about this hypostatic union is that God is that powerful and yet that personal. That's Jesus. If that doesn't make you smile, I got nothing else for you. And I'll tell you this, you may want to leave and go find another religion. 
Let me know how that works out for you. Because no one will preach that God. They get to make up whatever they want and they won't come up with that. And then it says this, this next part. So it says again, that entire thing was the fact that the God who is above the angels made himself to be lower than the angels. He's setting up this amazing spectrum for us that's going to propel us into the rest of this book. And so the second half of verse 8, it says, For in that he put all subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now, this is, this is a little confusing. I want to try to clarify. It says, but now we do not yet see all things under him. Now keep in mind, the him is not Jesus. It's actually just man, okay? It's just man. So he says, look, so he put, he, for in that he, that is Jesus, put all in subjection under him. That's man. He says that man has been given dominion over the earth. And this is true. We saw it in Genesis. God gave him dominion over the earth. Adam broke it. Sin entered the world. It fractured everything. Not only us, but the world itself is fractured now. It's bent. It's wrong. It's upside down. He says, you were given all dominion and then you entered sin. So it says this, it says he, he put in all subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. He says, but you notice that man doesn't actually have dominion over everything. But yes, we do. Of course, we can do whatever we want. Tell me the last time you stopped it from raining. It's California. You don't know what rain is. Uh, um, when was the last time we controlled the weather with sheer will? We don't. Do we, have, do we have dominion over certain things? Yeah. I can kick this if I want to, right? Can we stop a hurricane? Can you stop an earthquake? Can you stop disease? Can you stop sickness? Can you stop sin? Can you stop death? So he says, you've been given dominion over all this. It was fractured. And now what we see is that we actually don't have dominion over everything. Verse nine, but we see Jesus. Oh, love that. But we see Jesus. You were given dominion. You screwed it up. You don't have dominion, but now we see Jesus. And what Jesus does is he comes in and he fulfills that dominion. What we lost in Adam, we regain in Jesus. What Adam fractured, Jesus restores. So when the wind and the waves spike up, Jesus says, stop. And he shows us dominion over all as was intended for us, but broken by us. So he comes in and he fulfills what Adam lost, what Adam broke, what we all break. He comes in and he restores, he fulfills, he completes, he perfects. So now Jesus is ushered in. He says, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. But we see Jesus. Jesus now rules, always has, comes in and shows us that he does rule over the spiritual realm. And Jesus also rules over the physical realm. Being able to mediate and understand every single thing you're going through. He's able to mediate. Some, some people say it with one foot in heaven and one foot on earth. Jesus is the only one that can span that chasm, that can say, Father, I know what they're going through. God the Father doesn't, by the way doesn't make him less God. It makes him a different person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit wasn't nailed to a cross for your sins. Jesus is now the great high priest. And it's not that he says, it's not that they didn't sin. It's he says that they did, Father, but I took care of it. It's now about what I've done, not what they've done. And if they're in me, the Father looks at them and sees the Son and he's pleased. How do you get to heaven? That's how. You get to heaven when God looks at you and sees Jesus, that's it. Because if you want to put your stack of deeds up against a holy and perfect God, how often does a good man sin? How many of you would love to just sin once a day? Wouldn't that be an amazing step forward? Most of us do it before we get out of bed, right? Alarm, Ugh, curse word. Lord's name in vain, right? Right? 
If you just sinned once a day, how amazing would that be? That would be 365 sins a year by the time you turn one. It'd be 365 sins again. I don't do math. I was a comm major. By the time you're two, right? If you could just sin once a day, you're going to take all that before God and say, I know you're perfect, but I wasn't terrible. It's not going to work. He has to see completed, perfect work. That's why we take off our robe of wickedness. We put on Jesus's robe of righteousness. We say we're in him. Therefore, we're not seen in our sin. We're seen in his work. And Jesus said, it's finished. So this God from way up here comes all the way down here so that he can pay that penalty. So he rules over the spiritual, he rules over the physical. And I'm just gonna read, I love this last part, and then I'll close. It says this in Romans 5, 12. It says, therefore, just as one man, just as through one man, that's Adam, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all sin. And some of the women are like, good, we're off the hook, right? Man is used in the ancient language. It's used for all of humanity. It says one sin infected the world and it spread to all. None, none have gone sinless. None have gone blameless. The Bible says that one sin separates you from God. Romans declares that one sin entered through one man and it infected every man, every woman, all of humanity. Therefore, we're now separated from God. And it says, death through sin. Well, that's fine. We all sin. Okay, then we all die. The Old Testament says that blood must be shed for the remission of sins. But here's the bummer part. Our blood won't cut it. It didn't in the Old Testament. That didn't atone for sin. It just covered it. And as we're going to see throughout this, this book, references to this sacrifice that Jesus came to earth to live the life that we should have lived, to die the death that we deserved because someone has to pay. Someone has to pay. And so verse 10, I'm just gonna read down through the end because it's more poetic than I could do justice. That's the bad news, but here's the good news. The bad news is that on your merit, we do not, on our merit, we do not get into heaven. For one sin, we don't get in, let alone however many we drug in here today. Mine being probably the tallest list here. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. Verse 10 says, for it was fitting for him for whom all who, for whom are all things and by whom are all things and bringing many sons and daughters to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Jesus knows why? Because he went through it. He went through what you're going through. He's that personal. He does know. Remember that this week that he understands and he cares and he weeps and he's burdened and he's heavy hearted for what you're going through. He claps when you clap, but he cries when you cry. And it says he stores every tear you have in a bottle. He knows every hair on your head. He says, salvation made perfect through sufferings for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all one. We are one with Jesus. He's the one who sanctifies. We're the ones being sanctified. That's just a process of becoming more like Jesus. For which the reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. No God of any false religion calls us brothers. Jesus says, I was there, Father. Those are my brothers and sisters. I know what they went through. I've experienced it. He's not ashamed to call us brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken in flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who has the power of death, that is the devil. The devil's power rests in the grave. Therefore, Jesus went to the grave to undo his power. 
verse 15, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he has been, he had to be made like his brothers that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He says he had to become us so that he could be on our behalf. A God that doesn't know can't judge because he was never there. Jesus came and Jesus now judges. The Bible says that the father judges no one. He's committed all judgment to the son. Why? Because Jesus was here and he knows. Now he's the only one that can judge because he is the only one that can identify. And it says, make a propitiation. That just means the removal of divine wrath. What happened on the cross, I'll finish, says, for in in that he himself had suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Propitiation. Many things happened on the cross, but arguably the most profound thing that happened was propitiation where the wrath of God, which was stored up for all sin, for all time, was poured out, not on me, not on you, not on the lambs, not on the goats, all the wrath of God, which should be directed at all of us, was focused and honed in on Jesus as he hung there. And it says the wrath of God was then poured out. How do I know this? Because in the garden beforehand, he didn't pray that God would take away the crucifixion. He didn't pray that God would take away the crown of thorns. He didn't pray that God would take away the scourging. He didn't pray that God would take away the beating or the beard being plucked out of his face or the mockery or the spitting. He prayed that God would remove the cup. Old Testament reference to the cup of wrath. And in that moment on the cross, God's wrath was poured out on Jesus and God the Father then became satisfied. And he's not angry with you anymore. People are like, the God of the Old Testament was so angry and then all of a sudden it's different. Amen, it's different. Something changed. Propitiation, now the wrath was transferred. It was pummeled upon Jesus as our sin God poured out his wrath and he put our sin to death. And now the God from the heights of heaven goes into the depths of the grave as one sacrifice made by one man for all sin for eternity. And it didn't end there. He rose up because the power of the devil is in the grave. And so when Jesus rose from the grave, he relinquished the last bit of power that even Satan had. And he says, finished. It's over. So I invite you tonight as we go into a time of worship to sing to that Jesus. The Jesus is at that, he's that high up, yet he came that low. My father, a great man of God, once said, we must never put Jesus above how low he went on the cross. Never put Jesus above how low he went on the cross. He's seated on the throne in heaven now, but remember that he went to the depths of the grave to pull us back into communion with him. And so we take communion to remember his body signified by the bread, his blood signified by the juice, that his body was broken as our sin and that his blood was poured out to atone for our sin. God, that powerful yet that personal loves you died for you and wants to hear from you tonight and so we're going to sing to that jesus amen let's pray jesus it's it's one thing it's one thing to stand up here and say it it's another thing to truly believe it and i do truly believe it that you are currently actively alive in heaven listening smiling, weeping, laughing for your children. Jesus, I just pray that we would see you in that light this week. That those like me that put you off in the distance would understand that though you created the heavens, you came to earth. You cared that much. You're real, you're personal. And it's the only way that we can achieve eternal community 
with God is through what you have done because what we've done is wicked and what you've done is perfect. So Jesus, we just thank you. Ask that you be glorified in this time as we continue to worship and we partake in communion, remembering what you did out of love for us. We love you, Jesus. Can't wait to see you again. Amen.